Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs. And I'm Cody Sims. And welcome to My Climate Journey. This show is a growing body of knowledge focused on climate change and potential solutions. In this podcast, we traverse disciplines, industries, and opinions to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and all the ways people like you and I can help. We appreciate you tuning in, sharing this episode, and if you feel like it, leaving us a review to help more people find out about us so they can figure out where they fit in addressing the problem of climate change. Today's guest is Goggin Dillon, co-founder at Synop which provides a software-based platform to help transportation fleet managers deploy and manage commercial EVs. I found that any conversation about mobility solutions inevitably turns to conversations about fleets. And I have to admit that I went into the conversation with Goggin feeling like I needed to better understand what fleets are, how they manage access to fuel today in a non-EV world, and how all of this will change as fleets adopt EVs. Goggin patiently explained the fleet landscape to me and helped me understand how the electrification of fleet-based transport will change many of the dynamics that are ingrained in the transportation sector today. And we also dug into the Synop product offering, what customer segments he is targeting to start, and how he sees his business evolving as the EV space matures. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation with Goggin about Synop and about the future of fleet electrification, and hopefully you'll learn a few things along the way. I know I did. Goggin, welcome to the show. Hey, Cody. Appreciate you and the My Climate Journey team for having me. Thanks. Well, I am super interested to hear how you and Andrew first landed on this problem of working on the electrification of fleets. Maybe walk us through, you know, your backgrounds, how you guys met, and how ultimately this ended up being the the business that you wanted to build. Yeah, absolutely. So Andrew and I actually met back in high school in 2005. So, you know, we went to high school together, went to college together, had always had these passions of wanting to build things, you know, tinkering in projects, you know, ultimately, you know, as we grew in our careers, you know, we sort of got more and more interested in the problems that the climate world was beginning to face and our world was beginning to face. And so over the last five years, you know, really starting off in 2017, we were always dabbling in these ideas of what were interesting ways for us to make an impact in the world of transportation and logistics. You know, I'd had a background in commercial auto through my previous life. I was working very closely with Volvo and Volvo Trucks, helping them build fleet products. You know, Andrew was working on software solutions at Amazon Web Services and was exposed to, to large opportunities and problems there within the Amazon ecosystem. And we just sort of naturally gravitated towards this world of logistics, which, you know, if you think about it, 24% of the greenhouse gas emissions in the world are are contributed by the commercial transportation and logistics industry, right? So it's a pretty big chunk. And if you can make some sort of an impact in that, you can have a pretty substantial impact in the greenhouse gas emissions that are in our atmosphere. So, you know, we started to, to, to look into ideas. There was a lot of opportunity, we felt like, and especially through this lens that I had at Volvo, we felt like there was a lot of opportunity in commercial fleet electrification. So if you look at trends that happen in the space of the automobile, right? I would say every innovation that happens in personal auto eventually makes its way to the larger vehicles, the larger commercial vehicles, right? So if you think about connected cars, they came about 10 years ago, and then every commercial fleet became connected and they were sending data back to the cloud, right? You saw what Tesla did to the world of you know electrification and personal passenger vehicles, we felt like just with 
regulatory tailwinds. We felt like with the technology that there was going to be an opportunity for commercial OEMs, whether that's class A truck manufacturers, school bus manufacturers, all these big vehicles you see on the road that are loud and noisy, they were eventually going to follow the same set of technology that passenger vehicles are taking. And as they followed that, right, you needed to create technology to make it easy for them to stay on the road, for them to be charged optimally, and for them to ultimately scale and bring down that, you know, GHG number that we're all so focused on. So it was sort of this, you know, perfect storm of opportunity in front of us, things we saw from a unique vantage point we had, you know, at our past jobs, you know, a little bit of pandemic burnout. You know, we were pretty tired of, I feel like as the whole world was in the middle of 2021 with, you know, sort of our day jobs, we wanted to go pursue a different challenge. And so this idea of Synop came to us and, you know, we started working on it last June of 2021. Well, super. And I, I'm super interested to dive into what big ahas you had that have led to the actual product that you're developing. But before we dive into that, let's baseline and sort of level set on the problem of fleets in general. Anytime you dive into the world of transportation, mobility, you hear about fleets. But I'd love to hear from you, like, what is a fleet? What does a fleet entail? What are the most common fleets today? How are they generally owned and managed? And I'm sure the answer is there's lots of different ways. So maybe maybe walk us through some of the more common types of fleets that exist in the transportation sector today. Yeah, no, absolutely. Look, I mean, I think the, the simple answer or definition of a fleet, right, is it's a collection of vehicles. It could be a collection of bikes. It can be a collection of buses. It can be a collection of truck cars, a collection of cement mixers, whatever. A fleet is essentially a, a collection of vehicles that a company or individuals use to transport themselves or goods, right? But when we look at what's happening in the world of fleets today, fleets are all around us and we sometimes probably don't notice that, right? The school bus your kids ride on, they're a part of a school bus fleet, right? Our mail is part of the largest fleet in the world. The USPS is 240,000 vehicles that, by the way, 40% of are being electrified over the next 10 years. You know, like these fleets are everywhere around us and, and we interact with them in a day to day basis, whether we know it or not. Right. They're transporting our goods. They're transporting our kids. They're transporting us in a lot of cases. If you're on city transit, if you're in an Uber, if you're in a Lyft, they are all part of a fleet. All of these you know, modes of transportation, these methods that we use to get around, they've gone through two transformations. Right. Their first transformation was back in 2017, 2016, 2017 they began to get connected, which means that every vehicle could now be tracked with its geolocation to tell us where it is, where it's going, and you know the state of the health of that vehicle, right? And that was a big innovation about six, seven years ago through these little devices called ELDs. It's an electronic logging device, right? They'll tell you what's going on with your vehicle at all times. Back in about 2017, 2018, the federal government started a mandate that commercial vehicles have these devices, right? And so this whole slew of startups came up, right? Samsara, Keep Trucking, Geotab, others really started to take off through this innovation in the fleet world. And now the you know, sort of the tailwinds that we're riding is now that fleet world that sits on all this data that, that tracks all of these you know, vehicles, they're starting to become electrified. And so now you have an opportunity for even further products and enhancements to happen and for that scale of electrification to happen faster because you know where these vehicles are, you know how they respond to certain conditions. And now you have this challenge of, well, I got to help them charge and I got to help them connect and interact with the grid, right? And so that's sort of where the state of the fleet world is today. 
you know, most suites are privately owned. They're owned by, you know, Fortune 500s, Fortune 100s that we all know. Individual operators very rarely own a fleet, right? You know, there's a lot of truckers that are independent operators and they might have a, one or two vehicles. You know, you kind of consider that a fleet, but, you know, the larger transportation companies, you know, governments, they, they own a lot of the fleets and vehicles we see on the road. And you often hear of OEM fleets. Describe what that is. You know, why does Ford or GM or, or whomever own a fleet as well? Yeah. So, I mean, every OEM got a different model, right? An, an OEM fleet is, you know, it could be a fleet that they own and operate to service, you know, parts of their business, right? And so GM might own their fleet because they've got sales reps that are going to their dealerships or they've got, you know, folks going to their maintenance centers, right? Ford might own a fleet for the same reasons, right? I remember when I was working over at Volvo, they they owned a fleet because they were then leasing that fleet out to subcontractors, right? And they were using those vehicles so they could lessen the cost of owning those vehicles, but still participate in the financial benefits of driving a truck, making money, and then not having to worry about the hassle that comes with ownership of a vehicle. So, you know, OEM fleets, I think they're a newer concept, but there's definitely a lot of you know traction behind that concept because of this as a service model that a lot of us are starting to become more and more familiar and comfortable with. So vehicle as a service, truck as a service, right? I'm going to, it's going to be owned by somebody else, but I, as a consumer, I'm going to take the benefits of it without having to take the financial you know, burden of owning and paying for it. The fleet, it's part of a fleet that's owned by an OEM or some other service. You know, obviously, when we talk about electrification of fleets, we start, we're thinking primarily about, you know, how are these fleets getting power so that they can continue to drive. And there's a whole lot more to that story. But before we go into that, how are, from a internal combustion engine perspective, fleets that are filling up with gasoline or, or diesel, how is that generally managed today? Do most of these fleets end up cutting some deal with a local filling station where they're getting a discount on fuel? And is someone managing the refueling on behalf of the fleets or are they are the drivers just responsible for topping up the tank at the end of the day? Like, what does that generally look like today? Yeah, I mean, so generally today, when you think about it in the internal combustion engine world, the ice world, as we call it, right, they have this concept and there's big, massive businesses that sit on this concept of fleet cards, right? So you've got this, you know, sort of fuel fleet card. And, you know, your fleet has cut a deal with pilot travel centers or they've cut a deal with, you know, Flying J truck stops. And so you're going to get a discount on the fuel there. You're going to go in there. You're going to swipe your card. You're going to fuel up and then you're on your way, right? It's a 10, 15 minute process. Very easy. On your way. You're out, out the door as, as an operator. To the second part, right? The honest answer is it depends on how, you know, a fleet's operations are set up. If you're bringing your vehicle back into some sort of managed, you know, site every day where you leave the warehouse with your vehicle and you come back to it, that fleet might have on-site fueling. They might have, you know, folks that are going to fuel those vehicles up. They're going to have them ready for the next day, right? If you're more over the road, you're driving longer, right? You are, as a driver, probably responsible for the fuel and maintenance of that vehicle while it's on the road. So, you know, there's a couple different concepts that these fleets follow when it comes to fueling. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. The, the largest of them, you know, will have their own fueling stations there at the at the overnight facility, presumably. Okay, so hopefully that's at least helpful to me in terms of understanding the kind of the state of the world that we live in. And, you know, now we're moving to this world where, oh, you know, we're changing the entire way these cars are are powered. And so with that comes a whole new set of considerations. So maybe walk us through with electrification and with fleets considering 
purchasing EV vehicles, EV vehicles, that's like saying ATM machine, um, (laughs) EVs, walk us through what these fleet owners are grappling with. Yeah. So look, I mean, I think that the biggest thing, right, is that you're going through a transition as a fleet owner where there's a very defined workflow of how you fuel today, right? It's your driver's going to fuel up just like we talked about, or somebody's going to fuel up for them at a warehouse or depot that you manage, right? And now you're introducing this new idea of, I have to have an understanding of energy rates, right? I don't want to charge when it's most expensive for me to charge my vehicle. You have to have an understanding of how charging infrastructure works, how you install and plan for the installation of charging infrastructure. How does that charging infrastructure integrate in with your local utility, your local grid, right? How do you understand your time of use rates? And so like those are, these are big challenges that these fleet operators are now starting to get their head around, but they're also starting to, you know, they have to go through a learning process, a learning journey to be comfortable to be able to make that switch, right? And then when you make that switch, right, the two biggest things you're always going to worry about, let's say you've purchased your EVs, let's say you've installed your charging infrastructure, there's two things you're always going to really, you know, two things you really want to care about. Number one, do I have enough charge to meet the requirements of my day, right? If my vehicle requires 100 miles of charge today, do I have 120, right? And how do I get to that 120 at the most optimal rate at the most optimal time. And the other thing you're really going to care about is do I have enough chargers available to charge my vehicles when they come back, right? How do I optimize my schedule? How do I optimize my energy requirements to make sure that my fleet uptime is the same as my, you know, as it would be for a diesel fleet. And I'm hearing you say that for most of these fleet owners, when it comes to EVs, they are creating on some kind of on-site charging facility or EV supply equipment sort of build out to their local fleet management, which is interesting because when we talked about ICE vehicles, you know, you said it really depends on the use case. You know, the facility may have on-site fueling, but they may also just hand out fleet cards to their drivers and kind of keep them responsible for filling up the tanks. So that by itself feels like an incredibly seismic shift that we're talking about with EV fleets. The expectation is that the vehicle is going to return to some center and get fueled up or get get recharged at the center. Is Am I leaping too much to a conclusion there? Or is that is that what you're seeing somewhat across the board at this point? No, it's not a leap. And I think, you know, the reasoning behind this is important, right? So when we think about the ICE vehicle use case, mostly those vehicles are over the road, they're longer distances, and they're, you know, it depends on the type of fleet, right? Like if we think about Class A trucks, they're driving around a lot, they're probably not coming back to the same place every night. Now, where the state of electrification and commercial fleets is, there's three buckets it falls into, right? You have depot charging, which is the use case we're talking about. You know, you leave your site in the morning, and then you come back at night to the same place so you can charge, or at least an, another depot that your fleet owns, right? So you're not you're not charging at random places. The second use case is at-home charging, right? So this is more relevant if you've got like an electric pickup truck and you're, you know, you work for Duke Energy or somebody like that, and, you know, you can take it home and you can charge it at home, right? And then the third case is over-the-road charging, which is very similar to the, you know, hey, I'm going to fill up diesel. Instead, I'm going to charge up at a Electrify America or some other, you know, charger that's outside of the depot. So those are the three, the three use cases that are starting to come up in electric commercial fleets. Now the industry is very early, right? And everybody is, you know, they're, they're sort of walking before they run. And there's a lot of depot use cases because these large commercial fleets that are taking on the owners to switch to electric want to own and install that infrastructure. 
and you know they're deploying that infrastructure in use cases where the vehicles don't have a long driving requirement. It's also presumably a lot cheaper to install sort of an EV supply equipment chain on your site than it is to install an actual like set of diesel gas pumps, I would assume, and probably a lot less regulation. I think the regulatory piece is way less. Obviously, when you're when you're installing diesel tanks, you know, in the ground, you're going through all these environmental checks, you're going through all these other compliance regulation checks, right? And it's just a longer process. And with the charging infrastructure, you don't have those challenges. We're going to take a short break right now so our partner Yin can share more about the MCJ membership option. Hey folks, Ian here, a partner at MCJ Collective. Want to take a quick minute to tell you about our MCJ membership community, which was born out of a collective thirst for peer-to-peer learning and doing that goes beyond just listening to the podcast. We started in 2019 and have since then grown to 2,000 members globally. Each week, we're inspired by people who join with differing backgrounds and perspectives. And while those perspectives are different, what we all share in common is a deep curiosity to learn and bias to action around ways to accelerate solutions to climate change. Some awesome initiatives have come out of the community. A number of founding teams have met, nonprofits have been established, a bunch of hiring has been done, many early stage investments have been made, as well as ongoing events and programming like monthly women in climate meetups, idea jam sessions for early stage founders, climate book club, art workshops, and more. So whether you've been in climate for a while or just embarking on your journey, having a community to support you is important. If you want to learn more, head over to mcjcollective.com and click on the Members tab at the top. Thanks, and enjoy the rest of the show. All right, back to the show. And so to your own business then with Synop, is there any one of those three use cases or all of the above that you're primarily focused on right now? Yeah, so you know, our, our goal at Synop is to be the leader in fleet electrification across you know all three segments, but very focused on depot today, right? So we're focused on where, you know, the depot use case is, which is, you know, we're going to help you with smart charging management, which essentially means we're going to help you charge your vehicles at the optimal, you know, charge they need to be for your routes every day. We're going to help you with the energy management, which is the interface with the utility grid to understand when to charge based on pricing, you know, how to throttle charging based on you know the load that you have available from an energy perspective at your site. And then we're going to help you with the vehicle piece as well, right? So we integrate in with the telemetry providers to help you understand real-time state of charge, location of vehicle, what routes it has planned, and how all of that optimizes your charging schedule and energy demand. So we're very focused on that first one, Depot. You know, we're starting to get a little bit, a little bit of use cases in that at-home charging, but for over-the-road charging, especially in a commercial vehicle standpoint, there has to be a lot more investment from an infrastructure standpoint to make that viable for these fleets. And and you're starting to see that investment, right, through the IRA and other regulation that's passing. And so with depot-based charging, are there primary use cases that you're finding are leaning into electrification first in terms of the types of fleets that that are first sort of saying, hey, you know, today we've just been handing out fleet cards to our drivers we actually want to bring this in-house where we can manage charging and energy and sort of go from there. What are the types of driving use cases that are that are most leaning into that right now? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, there's three categories that we really see a lot of traction in. I mean, number one, it's the bus space, right? Whether that be school bus or municipal bus. You know, these are vehicles, classes that have a pretty defined set of routes. You know, you're you're going in a, in a pretty small area of service. And so they're, they're very prime for electrification. There's a lot of government tailwinds behind electrifying these assets as well. 
you know, the other one is the class eight drayage space, right? So drayage is this concept of taking goods from the port to local warehouses and then moving them from those warehouses down the logistics chain. Now, California and other states are really leading this charge in regulation of electrifying these use cases because, again, they're pretty defined. You know, these vehicles that they use today emit a lot of greenhouse gases and they're loud and noisy. And so there's a big push in California, especially to electrify 100% of the drage fleet, which is over 30,000 vehicles over the next What do you know, drage vehicles tend to look like? Just help me picture what it's I'm... It's just a, it's a classic semi, right? So it's just a, an 18-wheeler, right? Or it's either going to have a sleeper cab or it's not going to have a sleeper cab. So that's what a drage vehicle looks like. But the difference between that and, you know, a vehicle I'm going to run in, into on the interstate in the middle of the Nevada desert is that a drage vehicle is running a fairly defined, fairly local route from the port to a warehouse and then from the warehouse to a Walmart or something like that. Is that is that correct? Yes. Yes. And I, I didn't realize we were already, you know, seeing the electrification of heavy semis starting to come to market in a big way. But that would lead me to believe that we we already are. Is that a correct assumption? Yeah, there's there's I mean, it's hard to pin an exact number on it, but you know, there's a few hundred electric semis on the road in the US today. You know, if you if you read any of the releases from the big OEMs like Daimler, Volvo, Picard, you know, they've got thousands of orders in place for these vehicles. And so that you know, that that is starting to happen. That is starting to make you know, people are starting to make those orders, commercial fleets are starting to commit to those orders. You know, I think over the next Three to five years, it's projected that that market is supposed to reach thousands of vehicles on the road. Now, the supply chain is sort of messed up a lot of where these vehicles should be. So we feel like as that starts to ease up a little bit, we'll see more and more of these electric semis on the road. Interesting. And and from what I understand, the biggest drawback is just the size of battery you need for those semis to go long distances. But if we're talking about mostly, you know, relatively short local trips from a port to a warehouse... That's where that I presumably becomes slightly less of a concern. And then you're helping them manage the sort of charging schedule, timetable and optimization. Am I understanding correctly? Yeah, absolutely. You know, these vehicles probably have a range, depending on the payload, somewhere between 130, 150 miles per charge. So if you're going, for example, from the port of Los Angeles to the Inland Empire, right, you can make that trip pretty easily with these vehicles and these use cases. And as these battery packs get bigger, as charging becomes more and more accessible, but also faster from a, you know, hey, I need to reach 20 to 100% and that technology exists to make it go faster, then you're going to start to see these vehicles be deployed across wider use cases. Got it. Super helpful. I, I, I didn't realize we were already seeing that start to, to roll out. So that that's awesome. What's the third big use case that you're, you're focused on today within the depot sphere? Yeah. So the third big one is, is last mile delivery, right? So these step vans that, you know, fleets operate, the, the typical logistic fleets that are operating, right? Those step vans. It could be a thermo king or something that's that's delivering cold chain storage, or it could just be, you know, the van that's delivering your local Amazon packages or whatnot around a given location. Yeah. So obviously Amazon's got a big focus. They've got 10,000 plus electric vehicles on order, specifically electric vans on order. You know, so it's fleets like Amazon, it's fleets like USPS that are making these big pushes for that are delivering logistics that want to electrify them. Because again, the theme here is these sort of defined routes. You're in a certain area, you're certain in a certain metro, and you can manage the range capacity that the vehicle has and you know, deploy it. 
And who are the main makers or manufacturers of those sort of specialty, you know, light range trucks at this point? Yeah, so so Daimler, yeah, Daimler's got a really good step van program that they're developing. Ford Pro, obviously, you know, Ford through their commercial business, they've got a really good program that they're building. Rivian, which is more of a new entrant, but they're partnered up with Amazon, right? You've got Lightning e-motors, you've got Green Power, you know, Green Motor Power, which which is out there. So you're starting to see more and more of these. GM has a new initiative with Brightdrop as well. It's a new market, but a very rapidly emerging market. You know, we feel like that there's a lot more entrants that are probably going to take a step into the U.S. market from Europe that are, you know, looking to deploy these step bands as well. And right now, you know, if you were to look at the customers you're serving today and sort of what you would be expecting to serve, you know, three to five years from now, how do you see that shifting? Yeah, so today we're serving... You know, we're serving a lot of traditional fleet operators today, right? We're also serving some OEMs as well. Where I think the shift is going to be is we're going to be very much focused on the enterprise fleet operator. So by that, I mean, you know, these large commercial fleets that are just dabbling and, you know, have two, three electric vehicles today, but have plans to scale as the industry scales and also as regulatory requirements require them to scale to electric. So we feel like there's a big pipeline that we're developing in traditional logistics carriers today, a big pipeline that we're developing in the school bus space and then the municipal transit space, right? So we think that those are those are areas of natural growth. Now, we also feel like there is a lot of opportunity within government fleets, right? There's a lot of opportunity within what's happening at the USBS. There's a lot of opportunity sort of in, in that world. And then finally, you know, there's going to be a lot of opportunity in the utility space. So Ultimately, yes, we're focused on fleets, but we are building an energy business at the end of the day, right? It kind of sounds weird to say that, but we're building an energy business at the end of the day because we are managing you know, a large amount of energy on our platform that these vehicles carry and energy that they can eventually send back to the grid for you know, bi-directional use cases. So if we think about what's happening in Texas, what's happened in other parts of the country with stress on the grid, right? Sinop over time. And even today, this is true, right? We've got a large amount of megawatt hours under our management that we can, in certain cases, deploy back to the grid. And so we think that's a very exciting opportunity and a very exciting prospect of you know, what we've done and will have done over the next two to three years. Well, let, let's definitely go into that. You know, on your on your website, you sort of list three main services that Sanat provides, charge management, fleet operations, and energy management. I was hearing you say just now, you know, sort of vehicle to grid orchestration, you know, is is a big use case as you view yourselves as an energy company over time. So maybe let's let's start there. Let's start with the whole energy management piece of what you provide. Most companies that I talk to today that work, you know, in the climate tech space and have some place where they're engaging with both an end consumer of energy and the grid, you know, sort of describe themselves as, hey, we can provide a whole demand response set of services, et cetera. I'm to some extent hearing you say that as well, that you know your goal is to help these vehicles charge smartly and have the ability to discharge back to the grid at appropriate times. Am I hearing that correctly from you? Yeah, so you're, you're hearing that correctly. The, the one thing I would say is, you know, we are not a demand response we are not a demand response company. We would rather partner and are partnering with folks that manage these demand response events that go through and orchestrate and work with the grid directly to do that. Now, you know, where we come in is we have all these vehicles under management. 
right? These vehicles have battery packs, battery capacity that we can then, in certain cases, right, dispatch that back into the grid to participate in demand response and B2G events. Now we've started to do that, you know, later today's the 22nd of August. So in about two days, you'll see an announcement with us in Daimler come out that shows, you know, how much work we've done this summer on the demand response and sending energy back to the grid side, which, you know, I think is going to be a really, a really big step for the industry. And we're really excited to put that out there. But, you know, I think from, from our perspective, right, there's only a certain number of use cases that can participate in these events, right? It doesn't make a ton of sense for a class eight semi that's doing routes every day and multiple routes every day to be used for a demand response event because the fleet needs its battery capacity. Now, school buses are a little bit different, right? So the school bus world, you in some cases have these buses sitting and idling over the weekend, right? There's a big gap in usage over the summer. So you can actually participate in these events. So that's where we see a lot of opportunity as we grow, as our you know, fleet operations grow. And that's, that's the way that we're you know, starting to tackle it. And it's primarily dependent today on the OEM to en- the vehicle manufacturer to enable that capability from the vehicle back out to the grid. Is that is that a correct statement? Yeah. So you have to have I mean, the reason this stuff is really hard is you sort of have to have like the perfect storm of things come together. Right. You have to have the capability for uh, be there from the OEM. You have to have the you know bidirectional capability exist for the chargers that you're using. Right. You have to have the firmware to match up. And you have to have software that can orchestrate that across those three levels. And then you have to receive the signals from the utility, right? So it took us almost a year to build out and test and, you know, actually deploy this capacity. And we had a team of 12, 13 really, really good engineers on it. I'm sure other people have way more engineers that they've thrown on it to try and solve it, right? So there's a lot of complexity that goes into this. You know, this market is very, fleet electrification is very early, but B2G is even earlier, right? Then being able to send and dispatch power back to the grid is, we think, a really, really powerful concept, but you have to get it right and you have to be able to deploy it at scale for it to really make a difference. Is there a peer-to-peer use case within a fleet? So, you know, uh, enabling one vehicle to discharge to another vehicle on the same sort of charger network as a, as an example? I mean, I think that there's like some scientific, you know, folks that are working on doing that in, in very like test use cases. You know, you have to be mindful as well of the impact sending so much energy back and how you send it back, what impact that has on the battery life of that vehicle, right? Because you want to be able to maintain as close to 100% battery life and capacity for that vehicle. Otherwise, you start to lose your return on investment and that vehicle starts to lose its utility you know, to your fleet. Well, let's let's talk about some of the other capabilities you provide then. you know, On the charge management side, I presume you're having to integrate with dozens of different charging network providers. Maybe explain what that benefit looks like from a fleet operator perspective to have your expertise in the mix there. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that the the reason we really invest a lot of money and time and resources behind charging management software, right, and being able to build the best in class charging management software is that, you know, as a fleet operator, you're never going to have just a single OEM of charger you work with, right? You're going to have multiple different types of OEMs of chargers, you're going to have different chargers for different use cases, and you want to have a singular platform you can use to manage those use cases and those chargers in one place, right? So We've spent a lot of time and have gotten very you know, familiar with every leading commercial charger manufacturer to date to be able to support from what is called the OCPP spec, 
you know, a set of protocols that every charger follows for smart charging, right? And so that is, you know, hey, I want to plug my vehicle in at 5 p.m., but I don't want it to start charging until 7 p.m., right? Hey, I need to reach 94% state of charge based on the route this vehicle needs to do tomorrow. I need to remotely reboot that charger. I need to easily onboard a charger that I have just installed at my, you know, newest depot. I need to manage my depots in sort of a, you know, holistic view. So that's what charging management for us means and what it enables us to do. You know, we support over 54 different models of commercial chargers today across 10 different OEMs. And that, you know, list is growing every, you know, every week. But it gives our fleet operators the custom sort of the the freedom and flexibility to work with the best in class chargers and know that they can manage them across their fleet very easily. So when you go through all of that, I can't help but reflect back on the conversation we started at the beginning, which is like how do fleets manage fuel today? And, (laughs) you know, they got a card and their drivers, you know, drive up to a gas station, swipe a card and the car is fully refueled or they, you know, have a, a diesel pump, which they had to go through all sorts of complexity to get permitted in the first place. But then beyond that, it's just having a truck show up once a week and fill up the tanks with with fuel. This sounds so much more complicated. Like if I'm a <laughs> fleet operator, I've got to think about all these things and my hair's on fire. I mean, I guess that's that's your job, right? Is to make it not complicated. For no, that was, that, that was going to be a response, right? It's like the beauties in the software, right? So as a fleet operator, you have regulatory requirements that you have to start to meet from electrification and carbon footprint standpoint, right? And so that's where we come in to help you meet those and not only meet them to, you know, with one or two vehicles, but meet them with thousands of vehicles, right? Because the one thing every fleet operator is doing is they are, again, walking before they're running in this world of fleet electrification, right? They've got three or four vehicles, they're testing them out, they're trying to figure out which routes to run them on, they're using software like us to help them understand that. And then when they're ready to scale, they're using software like us to help them scale from one depot to 10 to 20 to 30, from five trucks to 100 to 500, right? So that's where the opportunity for us really is. And I presume once they figure this scale out, it should be, in theory, much less expensive for them because they can buy their power at optimal times. They can discharge the power into the vehicles at optimal times. And, you know, they're not subject to all sorts of crazy shenanigans around inflated oil prices or this, that, and the other, you know, there's a much more, a much greater ability to predict the cost of their business. And by, you know, even installing solar or other things, even proactively reduce the cost of operating their business. No, absolutely. And I think the the one metric that always comes to mind for me, and this is, you know, this has been tested out for a couple of years now, so, you know, we can speak to it confidently, you know, there's a school bus fleet that we're familiar with that before they electrified their buses, they had a, you know, per mile cost of about a dollar thirty-one for a diesel vehicle. So for them to to drive a, a mile, and if, if we take into account everything, right, the fuel, the cost to pay the driver, the maintenance, and everything from an annual perspective, it was about a dollar thirty-one for them to drive a mile every, you know, for that vehicle. Now with the introduction of an electric vehicle on the same route, the same parameters, everything else being equal, outstanding, would you replace? the gas and maintenance piece with electrons, right? It's uh, about 64 cents a mile for that, right? So there's a massive reduction in that. And as these things start to scale, as these you know use cases start to become more and more relevant, we're going to see not only that cost savings, but also that environmental impact that it's going to have as well. And 
for by all accounts, everyone that switches from an ICE vehicle of some kind to an EV, right, they notice two things. They notice how quiet it is, and they notice how much easier it is on them to get around and use, right? And so it's very, very driver-friendly as well. Do you know if that, you know, that greater than 50% cost reduction, does that take into account the hardware costs of installing the charger networks? So the, these folks only installed a couple of chargers across a small depot that they built. So it took that into account. Now, the nice thing about as you install charging infrastructure, as you purchase more and more of these vehicles, there's so many government grants and incentives that fleets are taking advantage of. Your cost to install them is very, very minimal. And then help me understand how your business itself works. So are you getting in touch with these fleets before they start to electrify and you actually handhold them through the electrification process? Are they coming to you after they've already have a few cars on the road and they realize they don't know what they're doing or it's too complicated and they need to simplify? And then second question to that is what does the actual business then look like? What are they paying you for and how is that structured? Yeah, look, from our perspective, right, we're building a software as a service tool for the electrifying or electrification of fleets. And so you know, I want to build a software business in this space. And, you know, from our perspective and, and how customers find us, right, we start off in two different areas. Number one, you know, we're building a team that's going to engage with fleets that are looking to go electric or early in their journey. And they want to be handheld through the you know process of how do they build out and plan depots. We're not going to do that. We have partners that are going to help them do that, right? They are going through the journey of founding which vehicles and routes to electrify. We'll help them do that. And then they're going to go through the journey of, oh, okay, I've got my vehicles, I've got my depots built, and now I need to operationalize these at the scale and efficiencies that an ICE fleet would run at, right? That's where one of the areas we engage in. Now, we've had a lot of fleets and enterprises come to us after they've installed some chargers, after they've done their little test of you know, two or three vehicles and they're ready to scale, and they need software to help them scale, right? And that's where you know we're really starting to get a lot of traction. That's where we have a lot of numbers a large number of customers as well today that, you know, we're sort of helping them go from two to 50 to 100, right, both on the vehicle side and the charger side. And the way that we do that to your second question, right, is, you know, we're going through and helping them and charging them with, you know, the number of vehicles that are on our platform, right? So there's a monthly subscription that they pay us for the number of vehicles on the platform, for the number of chargers on the platform. And so that's, you know, that's sort of the, the entry for us as a business, as you know, that's our entry level business model. And then as you get more and more complex in these use cases, as you get more and more complex under energy management, right, there's other, other streams of revenue that we capture from, you know, energy back to the grid as well. And what, what interfaces are these, are the grid operators seeing from you to sort of get a sense of the services that you're providing on their behalf? So today, and I don't want to say too much about the state of the technology of utilities, but you know, that's utilities interact with us through an email, right? And so like if, if there's a VDG event or something happening, more often than not, we're going to be notified of that via an email. For the utility though, they have access to our dashboard, to our backend that show them the energy that we're dispatching, like, you know, we're showing them the vehicles under management if we can in some cases, and how much energy is available for them to pull back into the grid. So that's what that looks like. And I'm curious what you've learned so far on the journey that surprised you as you've been building this, like what either consistent asks from these fleet operators has been a surprising realization or consistent non-asks that you're seeing in the data 
that you're surprised more people aren't anticipating? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, when we when we started this company, we thought that the industry was a lot further along from a vehicles, you know, on the road perspective, from a chargers on the road perspective. And we, you know, we found that it wasn't. And for us, that's an opportunity, right? And we're, we're helping, you know, as many fleets as we can with, you know, with our technology. So I think that was a big learning was, you know, everyone's still sort of in this education mindset, right? Of, hey, I need to, we're going through this journey. We're learning how it's going to benefit us, what we use, what we don't use. So that was, that was a big thing for us. You know, I think a lot of what fleets are looking for, you know, it's funny to say this, but it's not, you're, you're not solving a super complex problem yet. Like there's two things they really want. They want to make sure the vehicle has enough data charge to meet the driving requirements for the day. They want to make sure they don't pay too much for that energy, right? They're not charged. So like, for lack of a better term, they're not charged for that energy more than they should be, right? So you have to have software that's going to reliably help them charge at this right time and have the appropriate state of charge for the route that they need to run. So those are like, I think the other big surprising thing for us is like, okay, you know, the there's very much a, you know, a, a walking before we run sort of mindset in this industry. And then the other part of it is, you know, things we don't really get asked a lot is, you know, I think people are going to become more and more aware of the energy management piece. And, you know, I don't think they understand the the power of how much, you know, energy they're storing and what they can do with it and how they can, you know, have a positive impact on the climate itself. I think that traditional fleet operators don't think about the climate impact as much. They think about the operational and efficiency, efficiency impact a lot more. You know, the larger corporations that have the chief sustainability officer or somebody else similar to that in a role, they think about the climate impact of electrifying. It's interesting because when you're talking to these fleet operators, like you don't hear them talk about the climate impact as much as you would think they would. But, you know, I think it's started to become more and more top of mind for them. And I'm curious, just thinking about how they are used to buying fuel today, which again is they go knock on the door of Conoco or Chevron or Shell and, you know, basically try to negotiate the best discount they can get on fuel. And, you know, now we're talking about, okay, I'm going to be subject to the pricing that is being provided by the utility at any given time of day, which is changing, you know, by the hour. In non-regulated utility districts, are you seeing them question which utility provider they should be using and, you know, seeking your advice on should we be swapping from utility A to utility B and can we get a discount on the price of electricity, you know, based on that? So we we are not getting that question a ton because, you know, I think that we probably sit a little bit uh, further downstream from, from when those decisions are being made, right? You know, so, so we're not running into that question a ton, but I also don't think I don't think that the risk of energy gouging exists in this industry where like, you know, price gouging and fuel could exist, right? Like, I think that there's a lot of regulation around, you know, how utilities price and how energy is priced. Now, during peak events, during demand response events, there might be cases where there's, you know, an uptick in pricing or, you know, you need to respond to some sort of event as a utility for the cost of energy. But for the most part, in areas that we operated in so we are in seven states with vehicles on on the road today you know we're we've seen a pretty consistent level of pricing from utilities and you know you mentioned just within the depot use case you know three big use cases school buses you know drage vehicles which is essentially are semi trucks and then vans and and light trucks that are doing point to point delivery those are lots of 
presumably different use cases that you're having to solve. Like as a business, how do you decide right now as an early stage startup with limited resources, how do you decide what to say no to? Yeah, I mean, I think for us, right, the priority has always been, hey, we want to focus on use cases where we know vehicles are actively deployed and that they're actually running routes. They're actually, you know, requiring software to charge them versus, you know, hey, we're going to have a fleet of 100 cement mixers on the road in 2024. and We want to go through an exercise of how we do that, right? I mean, I think for us, we've been super intentional about wanting to work with folks that have deployed, but industries that we know have strong regulatory and strong you know, consumer pressure to electrify and to, to reduce carbon footprints on. And we know that, you know, investments are actively being made to do that. So that's, that's kind of been where, you know, our focus has come from. Got it. So if there's a commitment to put EVs on the road for commercial use case at scale, like you guys are interested in learning more about how you could help service them is what I'm hearing broadly, if they're committed to doing it like right now. (laughs) If they're committed to doing it right now, there's a plan in place where they need help putting a plan in place, right? Like we, we are the people that they should reach out to or, you know, they, that can have a conversation with them. And that isn't to dismiss anybody that's thinking about it in 12 or 18 or 24 months, right? But as a young company, you've got to go out and prove what you're building. You've got to have actual data. You've got to have things that back what you're working on. And that was, you know, our solution to having that. And are you seeing charging networks themselves try to go into this space also, where they're trying to provide software services for optimization? Everybody's trying to provide software services for optimization, right? So I think what's happened with the charging network world, they were very focused on the personal auto side, right? And trying to help you charge your Tesla, your Bolt, or whatever vehicle you had. And now they're trying to build these fleet use cases. So, you know, we're starting to see a lot more interest from from the charging network providers. Do you feel there's a risk that they shut off your ability to access data? You know, you always have to have things like that be a top of mind. But, you, you know, we feel like by partnering with and working very closely with some of these charging network providers, you know, we can mitigate that. You know, we're not super reliant on the Electrify Americas or the EV goes of the world today, but, you know, that's something that is always top of mind. And then, you know, you all just announced a couple months ago your seed round that were led by, you know, many friends of the firm here with MCJ with obvious wireframe congruent and better ventures. Maybe explain a little bit about that, how you're planning to capitalize the business going forward, what you're planning to use this seed funding for and what your expansion plans look like. Yeah, absolutely. So we ended up raising a seed round in in April of this year. It was we were very fortunate to have Andrew Beebe and the team at Obvious Ventures lead that round. Very, very excited to have them, you know, be a close partner of our business. We were able to to have uh, Congruent, you know, join our investment syndicate as well with Abe and team. They've been super helpful. And then past investors, Wireframe and Better Ventures also participated. And you know, from our perspective, you know, we felt like that we were starting to see from Last fall up until early spring, we were starting to see some really good signals from a product standpoint that we built. Customers were really starting to respond well to it. We were starting to see that, you know, we had a lot of a robust pipeline being built and we felt like the industry was starting to, to tear at that point where it was going to, you know, you needed further investment and moving a little bit faster on the product and sales side. So for us, we went and raised that capital. You know, we're very focused on building out a sales team right now, a business development team and a customer success team. So it's sort of a commercial arm of our business and also executing faster on our roadmap, right? You're going to see a lot more from us on the energy management side. You're going to see a lot more from us on the charging management side. And with that, you need more and more talented engineers and developers within your business. So 
that's what we raised that capital for. That's where we're deploying that capital. You know, we're, we're pretty excited about having, you know, the runway to be able to do that and really, really thankful we're able to work with such a great group. For anyone listening who maybe operates a fleet or anyone listening who is one of those talented developers or other roles you need filled, what are the best ways for folks to reach out if they are interested in what you're, what you've shared today? Yeah, please reach out to us on our website, fill out the contact us form. It's right there at the front of the page. LinkedIn is a super, you know, another super easy way to reach out to myself or anybody on our team. We're very active there or at trade shows, right? We're at every almost major climate you know, trade show. We're at almost every major fleet electrification trade show conference. Or you can send me an email, D-H-I-L-L-O-N at synop.ai. Awesome. Well, Gagan, I super appreciate you taking the time to come on today. And I guess the, the final question I'll ask is, how do you think the space changes over the next five years? You know, looking forward, where do you see everything going? Yeah, look, I think the big thing that's going to happen over the next five years, right, you're going to see two really big shifts. You're going to see continued pressure and regulatory changes from states to further enhance the adoption of electric vehicles and reduce you know, greenhouse gas emissions from the transportation industry. You know, California is leading the charge. There's 15 other states that are adopting similar, you know, regulatory environments to California and regulatory uh, requirements to California for electrification of commercial vehicles. And then I think you're going to see a lot more OEMs offer a lot more choices of electric vehicles, right? Whether that be on the personal side, which we're starting to see a lot, but also on the commercial side, right? So almost every major commercial OEM has some sort of EV in development or that they've already launched. And with that choice, with that, you know, further diversity of vehicles, you know, it makes that cost of ownership a lot lower and it makes the, you know, it lowers the hurdles of, uh, uh, you know, a fleet going from an ICE vehicle to an electric vehicle. So we're excited to see both of those things happen. And then finally, you know, I think the third thing that I, we're going to see, we're starting to see, we kind of talked about at the beginning of this podcast, you're going to see a lot more talented people want to jump in and, you know, try and solve this, these problems, right? So folks that have worked in traditional big tech that have worked in other industries that reach out to us or are going to reach out to everybody else in this space, they're going to become more and more passionate about solving problems in climate. Gagan, thank you so much for joining us today. I learned a ton and hopefully everyone listening here did too. Yeah, thank you everybody for listening. Thank you, Cody and my climate journey team for having me. I really, really appreciate it. Enjoyed the conversation. Thanks again for joining us on the My Climate Journey podcast. At MCJ Collective, we're all about powering collective innovation for climate solutions by breaking down silos and unleashing problem-solving capacity. To do this, we focus on three main pillars. Content, like this podcast and our weekly newsletter. Capital, to fund companies that are working to address climate change. And our member community, to bring people together, as Yen described earlier. If you'd like to learn more about MCJ Collective, visit us at www.mcjcollective.com. And if you have guest suggestions, feel free to let us know on Twitter at MCJPod. Thanks, and see you next episode.